despite the fact that most folks are winding down in the pandemic, um, there are still or is still a fair amount of risk out there. That was HR lawyer Scott Moore. I'm Rob Lawrence, and this is EMS One Stop. Hello and welcome back to another edition of EMS One Stop. I'm Rob Lawrence and we're going to talk about a really emotive subject today. And that emotive subject is the topic of compulsory, and again we'll find another name for it by the time we finish talking to our guest, vaccinations, mandatory vaccinations. In the news, uh, we've seen that the Houston Methodist hospitals have suspended 178 employees over COVID-19 vaccine refusal. Uh, in fact, those members of staff have until June the 21st to get vaccinated or be fired. We just noticed today that uh, Goldman Sachs has uh, ordered employees to report their vaccination status as they have to return to the office shortly. Uh, I'm sure that's going to uh, attract some uh, discussion. And my own 21-year-old son can't go back to his university until he's uh, been vaccinated. In other words, no vaccination, no semester. So it's coming. To discuss these issues, particularly as they apply to the public sector, however, I'm delighted to welcome a great friend up there in the north east. So it means it's probably snowing or something up there. Uh, Scott Moore. Welcome, Scott. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. To start off with, why don't you just let everybody know a little bit about your background, because I think you're playing a major part in helping us think about HR issues, certainly across the EMS industry, uh, but clearly a lot of your thoughts apply to public safety across the entire board. Yeah, sure. Thank you. So I've been an EMT, uh, you know, a credentialed EMT now for over uh, 31 years and uh, a call firefighter for just about 17 but in addition to that, I have been an employment lawyer for also 17 years and have uh, possessed a couple of credentials in uh, by the certifying human resource uh, entities. So I've had a long experience in either managing or working in uh, frontline EMS organizations or uh, other public safety uh, organizations and, and really um, trying to take what is often very confusing employment and HR related issues and trying to decode those for EMS and, and public safety entities. So in a minute, I'm going to just throw you some questions that apply to both police, fire or EMS scenarios. But uh, you heard there at the top of the show talking about some of the things that are currently in the news. As we're coming out of COVID, people are trying to get back into the office. Uh, people are worried about, I guess, the public health of uh, all their employees. But, you know, what do you think about these various organizations now starting to mandate to uh, insist to ensure that people have been or can prove they've been vaccinated? Yeah, I think it's, you know, we saw a lot of um, press around this at the beginning of the year when the vaccinations were becoming widely available. And I think because there was such a push to get things back to what we would call uh, as close to normal as possible, there was a lot of discussion about, geez, can we mandate it? Because as we've known, you know, this vaccination issue really has become an incredibly public, uh, you know, a politically uh, driven uh, issue when it really needs to be an issue based upon a science. You know, you know, prior to the COVID pandemic, for the most part, if we had someone who was sort of identified as an anti-vaxxer, that was somebody really on the 
on the sidelines or, or in the minority. But as this uh, pandemic has become so politicized, you know, this issue is really coming to the forefront. So, you know, one of the things that we know, though, is that employers under the OSHA guidelines have an obligation to, you know, furnish a work environment that is um, safe and free from known hazards or hazards that one should have known. And so in this instance, when we're talking about COVID, um, that threat is really real, you know, in a pandemic that wiped out, you know, several hundred thousand people in this country. From a sort of big hand, small map, helicopter looking down view perspective, first of all, some of these employers that are now starting to mandate these vaccinations, I mean, are they within their rights to do that? Yeah, so the EEOC has um, actually recently re-released guidance back in May, but had released guidance earlier this year that essentially said, listen, for the most part, for your average everyday employee and an employer has the right to mandate that employees become vaccinated. Um, with the exception of really two instances. One would be an employee who has a medical condition that would rise to the level or qualify as a disability under the Americans with Disabilities Act. Um, the other instance would be under Title VII, an individual who had what would be a sincerely held religious belief for which becoming vaccinated would offend that religious belief. And in, and in both of those instances, what employers are obligated to do are to engage um, those employees uh, in, in what's called the interactive process and to try and identify if there is an accommodation, what would be called a reasonable accommodation that they could furnish to that individual, which accommodation being some form of a job modification that would allow them to perform the essential functions of their role, you know, that, that being said, in, in both instances, the, the, the hurdle is a little higher in an ADA-related case. Um, the reasonable accommodation is one which does not involve great expense or great difficulty. In a Title VII case, um, a reasonable accommodation is one that is other than a de minimis, a de minimis um, cost to the employer. So in those instances, to the extent possible, um, employers do need to try and find or identify when working with that employee, whether there is an accommodation they can provide the employee that would allow them to continue to have the, a safe workplace and for those people to perform the essential functions of that job. So by and large, it is permitted. And um, the EEOC's guidance has been very clear, even as recent as just about two weeks ago, that this is something that is well within the right of the employers to do, provided they make accommodations for those, those two particular categories of people. So I'm going to ask you to perhaps repeat a little bit of those answers because we've had some very specific questions. And uh, if it's okay, Scott, I'll put those to you and see if of we course. can kind of help help understand, you know, the answer and, and, and the sort of so what's that go with them. So if you're in a department, um, can that department make a non-vaccinated person wear a mask? Yeah, for sure. So uh, and in fact, you know, arguably, uh, as, as I said at the outset, that, um, you know, employers have an obligation to create a work environment that is free from known hazards. And so, and by the way, has an obligation to protect employees, and that includes protecting employees from themselves. So we see this often when we see company policies that, um, you know, people who operate motor vehicles um, you know, uh, wear seatbelts uh, or, or, or practice certain safety um, practices within the workplace. 
So the mask and the EOC came out on guidance on this one as well, that you can, re- you can require those who are non-vaccinated to wear masks. The only, again, um, caveat there would be if you have someone who has a medical condition for which um, wearing a mask would potentially create problems for that medical condition. Now, it's not just any medical condition. It would need to be a medical condition that that would qualify as a disability under the Americans with Disabilities Act. Now, as for um, the religious exemption, uh, in this instance, you know, we're really talking, if we're just talking about an ordinary surgical mask, um, that shouldn't be offensive um, to, to any religion. Uh, if we're talking about a, a filtering face mask or a tight-fitting respirator, as is under the OSHA guidelines, we often see N95s. In those instances, you, you know, there, there may need to be made an accommodation if, for example, you had a religion that, that prevents or uh, prohibits uh, individuals from having cleanly shaven faces. In those instances, you again would go through the interactive process and try and determine if maybe an alternative mask might permit um, and, and still permit you to protect that worker um, but, you know, what the law is very clear that um, sometimes we have employees who, uh, you know, don't want to follow safety procedures, but we still have an obligation to to enforce them. Let's drill down a little bit into the religious exemption piece, because, again, that was another very directed question is because if, if I don't like the, the, the policies that are being you know forced upon me, let's say, can I develop a religious uh, objection, let's say, like now, I've just I've heard it come in. Can I now all of a sudden go? Ah, but I now have a religious objection, or I claim a religious exemption. How do we break that one out? Yeah, so you know, it's interesting. I've seen that question come up a few times, where people say, "Geez, does it have to be a stated religious um, a belief prior to the pandemic?" And right. and the reality of the question there is no. Um, you know, people uh, and and faith is an interesting. Th- is an interesting thing. And from a matter of law, um, you know, an individual can um, find their faith at, at any time. And so, you know, what you're really getting at is the person who decides that, that maybe they want to state a religious object, objection when in fact, maybe it, it, is, it is more or I mean, less a religious objection than just an objection to the to the idea, and they're using religion. So, what the law says in the EOC under Title VII is that it has to be a sincerely held religious belief. And now, what I would suggest for employers are, you know, that one, I have forms for folks that you know um, regarding, and I suggest that people have a form if someone is going to request an exemption or an accommodation. Um, in some states, the law is that you actually have to document not only the request, but then the interactive process, which is that dialogue with the employer and the employee. But um, what I would suggest is that that person have to submit something to you in writing about what what is the basis, you know, what is the religious belief and the accommodation that they're seeking. Um, that does not have to be something because in most employment contexts, this isn't really going to come up. Um, until maybe, you know, for, for EMS folks or for folks who are required to wear N95, you know, that's, that's something that's required from, from higher and then annually thereafter that you're doing fit testing, that religious um, exemption should have come up or the religious belief should have come up earlier. But it's entirely possible that someone converted um, between the last fit test and this particular incident. So it doesn't have to be one that's been sitting in longstanding. It really, you need to, each time that is stated, you need to go through that interactive, what's called the interactive process. So it's not just the case, Scott, where I'll go, ah, oh, but I'm now religious. 
I therefore don't have to. There is a little bit more of an investigation or a drill down in order to understand the, the backstory, shall we say. Yeah, and, and that's an important point, right? That um, there are not a lot of religions that actually prevent, um, well, uh, you know, in fact, I, I, don't, I only know of one or two, in particular, um, the Muslim faith and the Jewish faith. There are um, certain um, beliefs in those faiths that, or certain sects of those faiths that require, one, um, often with the Muslim faith, you cannot be clean shaven. Uh, but I have gone through the interactive process with an employee who, what we determined was while he couldn't be clean shaven, he could keep his facial hair very, very short. And that with the facial hair very, very short, we were able to maintain a qualitative um, seal with an N95 respirator, which met the requirement. In another instance, um, my experience, I had uh, an individual of the Jewish faith who had a long um, beard. And what we were able to do was to locate a full head hood for that individual. Um, it was certainly more expensive and the organization, because certainly um, these things don't sneak up on you if you have a, an employee who has a full beard. Um, you know, in this instance, we were able to uh, provide that piece of equipment to the employee. They were required to maintain that piece of equipment. Um, you know, inform us if anything happened to that piece of equipment, but we were able to maintain a seal with that uh, piece of equipment as well. Now, one of the things that I'll say is though, um, you know, again, this has to be a sincerely held religious belief. Um, outside of those two religions, I am actually not aware of, um, and it doesn't mean they don't exist. I would just, what I would recommend are, you know, these agencies, departments contact their, their um, department council and or their organizational council and, and go through that analysis um, and ensure that you're doing the right thing. Because the reality is, if you have someone who does have a sincerely held religious belief, you don't want to offend that employee. You know, you're looking to respect that belief, that faith, and, and make sure that you're protecting the workforce. Thank you for developing that answer, Scott, because it's, it's, it's a great explanation for both those guys on the front line, the line worker, and also the leaders and managers, because you know, it kind of gives you an idea of what the length you need to go to. Um, moving on, if my partner isn't vaccinated, or if he's vaccinated and I'm not vaccinated, can we actually say, I don't want to operate with this person today because they are one or the other? Can I discern and have discretion over who my partner is because of their vaccination status? So uh, that's another really, you know, great question. And of course, um, you know, as most, you know, most of the reason, most of the time people don't love lawyers because we, we never give a straight answer. And so I'll give a straight answer as I can, which is um, possibly, right? So if the reason that the individual is not vaccinated is because of that legally protected religious or um, religious belief or medical disability, then it would be discriminatory to refuse to work with that individual. In fact, tantamount, right, to not working with someone because of their gender or their race. But what I would say is outside of those protected statuses, you know, would it be appropriate? Um, you know, certainly we've seen people refuse to work with all kinds of different partners. And what we always say to folks are, you need to be careful about what's called the disparate impact discrimination and a disparate impact discrimination, you know, dis disparate treatment is when I treat somebody differently because of a particular thing. That's pretty open and notorious, but a disparate impact discrimination is when I have a, a, a policy that on its face is neutral, but that it's resulting impact 
has a discriminatory impact. So for example, if I said, you know, uh, anybody has the right to refuse to work with someone who's not vaccinated, that policy alone without any other qualifiers will result in individuals who have sincerely held religious beliefs or individuals with ADA protected medical conditions will end up, you know, suffering in the workplace because of that. So what I would suggest is just recognize, um, an employer can mandate those vaccinations and the accommodation can be that maybe some employees are permitted to take longer periods of leave until such time as maybe the risk is abated. Um, some folks may, if you had office personnel, let's say, for example, they may be able to continue to work remotely. Um, but if an employer, um, if in fact what is requested is, geez, I don't want to get vaccinated and the organization is going to mandate that, um, you know, at the end of the day, if the employer can demonstrate that it's creating an undue hardship, then, um, you know, then they can take employment action. I, you know, I, I suggest that that's not the right thing to do. And I suggest that if you have people who are refusing to work with someone who is either unvaccinated or vaccinated, my, my real recommendation is educate, educate, and communicate with those folks to understand what's behind that. Because for all you know, the reason somebody is refusing to work with an unvaccinated individual or because they're concerned about carrying an illness back to their disabled partner or child. And so seek first to understand and then work from there. So going back to my introduction at the top, we talked about Houston and we talked about Goldman Sachs. They are suspending, threatening to fire, um, and also demanding the vaccination status of their employees. How legal is that? Yep. Yep. Great question. So you can, and this is permitted for employers to request what the vaccination status is of employees. Um, what you are required to do, though, is maintain that information in the same manner that you maintain other medical, um, you know, really confidential information, right? So this should not be something that's being announced from the, you know, that you have this publicly available list of those who are vaccinated and those who are not. If you're required to maintain that information, just like any other private confidential medical information of your staff. So in the instance of Goldman Sachs, they're, they're just demanding to understand who is and who is not vaccinated. Um, but I guarantee you that they are taking the steps necessary to safeguard that information, right? Should be held separately from the employee's personnel record in medical files that are um, really what would I would call super restricted. In other words, not all your people in your HR department necessarily have access to them. The only people that have access are those that absolutely need to know. Thank you for that. Collective bargaining. People are listening that either are in unions or that are, you know, have to negotiate with unions. Uh, I've seen some CBAs, some collective bargaining agreements out there that say that you know before you do anything to the workforce, you have to negotiate first. Is this negotiable? Yeah, and and I'll tell you that. You know, one of the reasons I became a lawyer was actually in witnessing what was a union campaign at one of the first organizations I ever worked for. Um, unions, you, you know, if if you are in a workplace where there is um, a union and there is an active um, collective bargaining agreement in place, my recommendation to employers are, look, this is a condition of employment and you would be obligated under the National Labor Relations Act to negotiate that with the union. So this is one of those instances in which 
um, by the way, it's hard for a union to take the position that they don't understand or recognize that the employer is trying to eliminate the hazard in the workplace, you know, trying because the employer is trying to protect. This is one that's really hard for anybody to argue that, um, geez, we shouldn't have to do this. Um, because under the law, if you're mandating vaccinations, you are required to not only furnish that vaccination, but you're also required to pay employees for the time that they're, um, to, you know, the time spent getting vaccinated. So in this instance, though, it is something that would be subject to the requirement to collectively bargain. And I would recommend that employers seek uh, and start engaging their unions or their collective bargaining agents and start working through this process again you know, it is, it would be required. No matter whether you're listening on Police One or on EMS One, you can follow us all on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Amazon Music, Stitcher and Spotify. And uh, if you're enjoying the show, please take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Scott, thank you for the answer so far. So where can those people listening go to for this guidance? Obviously that it's written down. Uh, where are the places we can actually get guidance if you are not an HR lawyer or not in the, the, the role to, uh, you know, be administering these policies? Yeah, well, I mean, of course, you know, uh, folks like you or, or I can always, uh, you know, folks can reach out certainly through, you know, my website, but really, frankly, this is information that's available to anyone going to whatever search engine that you use and you type in EEOC, what you need to know about the COVID-19, um, you know, and ADA and vaccinations. And I care any one of those key word searches will land you on the latest technical assistance Q and A's that are available. The last update was May 28th of 2021. You will find what I think ended up being about a 20, I mean, a 40 page um, multi, you know, multi-question frequently asked questions regarding COVID-19, all things COVID-19, not just the vaccination, but all aspects of this and how it intersects with um, the ADA and Title VII. Keep in mind the EEOC being the, um, the you know, governmental agency that oversees and governs both the ADA, all of the discrimination statutes, the, you know, Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act, the Title VII, the ADA, the ADEA, which is the Age and uh, Employment Act, the Age Discrimination Employment Act. So um, that's really, that's one location. Certainly, if you go to the CDC's website, there are, most of these sites are hyperlinked back and forth. And then lastly, in most instances, um, I often caution people that while, of course, there is the federal law, don't forget that in your individual state, while the federal law is sort of overlooming everything, Keep in mind that there are 50 individual states out there and that each one of those states um, often have their own laws as well. So um, when you're Googling uh, that information or you're you know, using a search engine, also search your state as well, because you may find that your state has a more restrictive uh, requirement than what is required under the federal statutes. You're right. And in fact, some states feel like different countries. As you know, I'm in California. <laughs> as I keep telling everybody, I love living in California because it's only half an hour on the plane to America. <laughs> That's true. You know, California really does lead the way. Um, and in fact, as I always say, when I, you know, Robin, when I see you at uh, California events, I say that when I want to know what's going to happen in the country or what's coming down the pipeline for employers in this country, I look first to California because they're almost always out front on that. And then next to usually New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts. And, um, you know, as a rule of thumb, 
you know, it's a good place to start. And, and so frankly, if you're meeting that California standard, in most instances, you are probably in the most re employer restrictive state in the country. So, um, you know, that is a, that, but, but just people often will lose sight of the fact that there are a couple of sets of laws at play here and that just following the federal law is not, is not enough. Scott, is there anything that I've missed that we should be asking as a question? You know, I honestly, this is one of those issues that is evolving so quickly that despite the fact that most folks are winding down in the pandemic, um, there are still or is still a fair amount of risk out there. And um, again, you know, there have been um, OSHA just released guidance uh, uh, yesterday regarding employer healthcare employer obligations and then also other employer obligations. Um, and so what I would say is, you, you know, this is the kind of thing that you need to be looking at on a regular basis. If you aren't on any of the listservs for OSHA, EEOC, Department of Labor, my recommendation is that you sign up for those listservs and, and you know, maybe not every day, but at least get the weekly update um, because uh, often there is a fair amount of information there that is um that's relevant for employers and outlines the obligations that you often find out way down the path after you've unfortunately violated the law. Um, but that, that, that information is, is they do a pretty good job at getting it out there and explaining it. So Scott, how can we get in touch with you? How can we follow you? How can we, if people have questions, because you've raised a few things that people may have deeper questions, they might want to have a sidebar discussion with you. How can we reach out to you? Yeah, and so you know, I, I'm I'm actually seeking help of my friend Rob Lawrence to help me with the Twitter sphere and some of the social media stuff. But um, yeah, you can certainly reach me at um, More EMS Consulting www.moreemsconsulting.com, or you can email me at smore uh, at moreemsconsulting.com. Of course, I do have a Facebook page and Twitter page and all that stuff. Um, but I, I'm sure I'm not going to state it correctly, and my kids would be cringing. So, um, but yeah, you know, as always, you know, and or folks can um, just certainly go into whatever search engine they have, type in Scott Moore and EMS, and you will find my website. And uh, I, I welcome those questions because truthfully, one of the ways now that I don't actively manage um, an ambulance service, one of the ways that I or work, I just stopped working on the fire department this past July. Um, one of the ways that I stay try and stay as current as I can is through the questions through folks like your listeners who really help keep me informed as to what are some of the things that they're facing day to day. And, and that helps me then go out and do the research and make sure that I stay um, up to date so I can advise, um, you know, leaders uh, who are out there on the front lines every day. Thank you for that. We'll make sure all of those links are in the show notes. You can follow me on Twitter at UKRobL1. The one is very important. Or find me over on LinkedIn. If you have a comment, please uh, place your comment in the section in the main article at uh, ems1.com. So that's all for today. My guest has been Scott Moore. Scott, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for asking me. And I've been Rob Lawrence. And until next time, bye for now. <laughs>